Yes, ladies and gentlemen, We Believe Survivors being one of the popular chants that you could hear all over the front of the Capitol steps this past weekend, right after Judge Kavanaugh was successfully confirmed by a 50 to 48 vote in the United States Senate, I believe. What an incredible weekend of political history and political commentary. And with that, we're going to get into today's show. Uh, if you're not sure where you are, this is the Podcast for Politics Band. Welcome to it. Thank you very much for spending some time with me today. You can reach us on social media at facebook.com slash politicsband, or you can tweet at me anytime during or after the show, which is not live, so at your at your earliest convenience, at, uh, at politicsband. And you can always read my thoughts or blog posts at politicsband.com. Wow. What a weekend. What a weekend. I have been uh, I've been chomping at the bit to get back here to home base and record a podcast for all of you today because uh, I was out of town over the weekend. I'm recording this on October 6th. No, October 8th, if I can even read my screen correctly, 2018. And with that, uh, I was out of town this weekend for a wedding and uh, it certainly made the anxiety about the Kavanaugh vote even more difficult to deal with, with all of the crazy family stuff that was going on as a result of that event. Where to even, where to even begin with the Kavanaugh vote? It's, um, there's, there's a lot to unpack that took place this weekend, and I'm going to do my very best to do that for you today. But I do want to start with a really broad context, and I really truly believe that this is a politically historic moment for a number of different reasons. For the first reason being, for the first time in, gosh, I mean, I, w- I want to say modern American history, but it could potentially even be longer than that, especially if any of you happen to be really, really close followers of the Supreme Court, you might be able to actually pass me some corrected information here. But folks, uh, we may be on the cusp of having a five to four majority of strict constitutional constructionists on the Supreme Court. And this is fantastic. This is a victory for not only the Republican Party, but it's really a victory for the um, the individual American, whether they realize it or not. And And certainly we have a ton of people on the progressive side of the House who see this as a, well, as a, as a blow to American rights, a blow to women, a blow to women's rights. And we're going to do our very best to educate everybody on why this is not the case. There's a few things that I want to go through today. I want to use the events surrounding Judge Kavanaugh's nomination as a springboard to talk about eh, something a little bit of a bigger picture. I was listening to Mark Levin's show. If you do not listen to Mark Levin, I highly encourage you to do so. You can do so via the Mark Levin app or at marklevinshow.com, I believe. And by the way, they are not a paid sponsor of this program. I do that completely free of my own my own will. Uh, over on Friday, I believe, there was a host who was out of Miami. His name is Brian Mudd. He was filling in for Levin. And Brian Mudd reminded me of something that I've known, but I've allowed to get away from me. And that is the purpose of all of us, whether it's just this super tiny podcast with probably only half a dozen to a dozen listeners, or a national radio show with millions and millions of people who listen each and every day, where we're not aiming to persuade the vast majority of progressives who are entrenched in their positions, progressives who get their information from comedians like Steve Colbert, or I think it's John Oliver. I don't even watch that show, except to poke fun at it or maybe be a little bit outraged by it. Progressives get their information from sources that typically can deliver little tidbits and sound bites in very, very small chunks. They're often void of context, void of facts, or the facts and context are stretched to such a degree that it fits a particular narrative. And most often, of course, that narrative is that conservatism is evil, that Republicans are evil, and ultimately they're out to take away whatever it is, take away your rights, take away your abortion, take away your health care. It's always a major fear tactic. 
And that's not to say that the GOP engages the same type of that they don't that they're not guilty of the same type of behavior. But we do see two very distinct approaches to governing and to well just an American lifestyle, an American culture. And especially with respect to the Kavanaugh nomination, what has been exposed is the the ugly underbelly of what seems to be two different Americas. And I want to go into some of the differences between those two Americas today, because as Brian Mudd pointed out on his show on Friday, and if you have a chance to listen to it, I highly encourage you to do so. I'm not going to play it here for you. We're aiming for this very narrow margin of individual who is open to information and potentially open to persuasion. And in fact, while I was traveling this past weekend, I had an opportunity to meet a lot of family members that I've never met before, uh, people on my fiancé's side of the family. And they have very similar thought processes to me. However, we were discussing how, you know, we kind of get into these debates and we get into these arguments and we take a very sports-like approach to all of them in which there's a winner and there's a loser. And well, what does winning or losing a debate look like? Well, typically it looks like one person conceding that their position is incorrect and surrendering to the other person's viewpoint. Or at the very least, that person saying, oh gosh, you know, I think I might need to reevaluate my opinions. That's typically what winning and losing with respect to a debate looks like. However, how often does that happen? Very, very rarely. I think I may have talked about one such circumstance on this podcast already where it's happened to me, and it was a magical moment. But they are super, super rare when they do occur, which is to say almost never. So as a result of that, why are we spending all this time combating essentially people who are not going to change their mind. I want to interject a a small Twitter update. I've kind of made a a theme of talking about Twitter every time I get behind the microphone here. I'm, I'm even more convinced than ever, as I've stated in previous podcasts, how worthless Twitter is for a discussion and debate format. And I have, over the past couple of weeks, kind of gotten away from myself when it comes to tweeting at and combating leftists on Twitter turn into a little bit of a troll myself. And I feel like that's really all Twitter is good for is trolling. But there are some rare exceptions to that where you get some really, really good insight and some really, really excellent information with respect to what the thought process are of the opposition, what they're planning to do, how they're planning to do it, things of that nature. So I'm definitely going to be making a greater attempt going forward to target my message to that very narrow, what Brian Mudd said was probably about 7% of the American people who are susceptible to persuasion and information. I definitely don't want to be inflammatory or name-calling because, of course, none of that really does anything. Although I do really, really enjoy pointing out the hypocrisy of the left and the hypocrisy of progressivism Because it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. But that being said, the Republican side of the House is not perfect either. And the Judge Kavanaugh situation has distracted me tremendously from the things that are happening within the GOP. And one of the things we'll have to get into probably as the weeks go forward was the budget bill that was just passed over the weekend under the cover of everything happening with Judge Kavanaugh. And needless to say... It does not shrink the size of government. It does nothing to address our national deficit and most certainly nothing to address the national debt. And if you have not listened to the very first episode of this podcast, I encourage you to do so in which you'll discover exactly why both of these things are vitally important to the future of this nation. So where does that leave us today? Judge Kavanaugh has been successfully confirmed. Everything seems right with the world. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are facing a situation 
even more dire potentially than what we have already faced with respect to Judge Kavanaugh. There are two Americans, um, two Americas currently. There is the America of some flavor of conservatism, libertarianism, but I would like to put these under the umbrella of individualism. People who believe in individual liberty, who believe in putting the individual first. And then you have the other side of the house, which is made up of a spectrum of liberals, progressives, socialists, communists, maybe even Nazis. That's one thing that is so bizarre about the argumentation today is the hardcore communists and the white nationalist Nazis all share the same love of big government. And yet there is a effort to try and attach at least the white nationalists to the side of conservatism. And as long as you remain uneducated about this subject, that's probably going to be done successfully. But I digress. We can label the communist, Marxist, socialist, progressive liberals as essentially status. And like pretty much throughout American history, you have two camps and they are divided typically by how they view the role of government. The statists view government as being the authoritarian source, the source of prosperity, the source of security. The job of government is to provide things like health care, public safety, and to basically care for all of your basic needs. And if you happen to have anything left over after that, that's a bonus. But if you have too much, we're going to have to take it from you. <clears throat> then you have the other side of the house, which are the individualists. And this could be, in my opinion, a little bit more hard to understand, a little bit more difficult to grasp, because individualism, I don't want to say is an acquired taste, but it's something that, unless you've experienced a situation where you've been blocked, whether you're opening a business or you're remodeling your home or you're trying to perform some type of an activity, as a great example, I was visiting Denver over the weekend, and a friend of mine informed me that one of the cities in the Denver surrounding Denver area, one of the suburbs, requires that you get a license to have a dog. But of course, the purpose for the licensing is to essentially raise tax money for a new shelter. But at the principal level of the situation, you have to obtain permission from the city to have a dog as a pet. So that's an example of where, as an individual, I should have the right to have whatever animal that I want, provided that that right doesn't intrude on the rights of my neighbors, it doesn't cause any major disturbances or lower their property values or hurt anybody. But that's an example of where individualism and statism kind of butt heads, because it's hard for the government to simply come out and say, we're going to raise taxes on everybody. Because not everybody necessarily contributes to the problem of stray dogs running around the neighborhood or anything of that nature. So they hold all dog owners responsible, even though you may be a perfectly responsible and otherwise rule-following pet owner. In this case, you're now held liable via your taxes, and you have to ask for permission from the, from the state, quote-unquote, to have a dog. These are the two Americas that currently exist and they have coalesced into two different sides very much thanks to the centralization of power in America. And we're heading towards a very dangerous, very, very dangerous conclusion. <clears throat> now, what does that conclusion have? What does that entail? Exactly. The situation with judge Kavanaugh is not going to be forgotten very quickly. And we are accelerating the rate at which both sides clash, both sides come into contact, and that's only going to get worse after this particular nomination. As an example, I want to go to the Washington Examiner. There's an opinion piece by Philip Klein where he says, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court will radicalize the Democrat Party. 
So he says, when Senator Susan Collins announced that she was providing Republicans with the votes necessary to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, I imagine liberals felt something similar to the way the conservatives felt when the Democrat majority passed Obamacare. After all, Obamacare was an unpopular piece of legislation. There were moments when it seemed in danger. Conservatives rallied and placed their hopes on a handful of self-proclaimed centrist Democrats. In the end, it didn't matter. All that mattered, conservatives were reminded, is that the party in power has the ability to impose its will on the rest of the nation. And the only way to change this is to win elections. The anger that followed fueled a Republican takeover of the House and eventually the Senate. So it's this is a good walk down memory lane, especially if many of you remember in 2010 when the ACA was passed by a very, very narrow partisan margin in the House and the Senate, and how parliamentarian rules were utilized to deem the bill, the bill as just passed. If you remember, the House of Representatives essentially took a piece of legislation, gutted it, and used it as a shell to insert the ACA and pass it along to the Senate. This was a very, very controversial situation. The, the Affordable Care Act was not passed with any kind of grace. It was done with the most egregious bending to the point of almost breaking rules. And as a result, it narrowly made it through. <clears throat> and of course, that was something that made a lot of conservatives very angry to the point where this was a campaign issue for relatively the next six years. Will they get rid of the ACA? And unfortunately, at the moment of triumph, when the GOP was within striking distance of terminating the ACA permanently, they failed. And I want to point out something. That's the typical behavior of the Republican Party. And one of the reasons why voters have found themselves so frustrated and ultimately why President Trump was nominated and elected. There's this massive confusion on the part of progressives as to how Donald Trump made it into office. And the answer is very simple, but it, it's, it's a contribution of a bunch of different factors. It's a contribution of mainly the Republicans folding time and time and time again when the situation got really, really tough when suddenly the potential of the media disliking politicians, maybe not being invited to cocktail parties in Washington, D.C., or these fragile friendships between Republicans and Democrats on a personal level becoming in danger. That's when we saw Republicans go, ah, oh, yeah, mm, yeah, that ACA, uh, yeah, we're just, we, we can't do it. They voted dozens of times to repeal it in the House. And when they finally had the opportunity, they didn't do it because they would have been held responsible for it. And so it's that kind of cowardice that ultimately led to Donald Trump being elected as president because people wanted someone who was going to fight back. And for the first time since I can recall starting to pay attention and follow politics, the situation with Judge Kavanaugh has been a huge exception to the normal behavior of the GOP. And you can see that was definitely not what the Democrats expected with this situation. And in fact, there were news articles claiming, although we have to take it with a grain of salt, but the claiming that sources within the Senate Judiciary Committee on the Democrat side had claimed that they had expected Kavanaugh to have dropped out very early after allegations were made. They never expected it to lead to a hearing. They never expected it to lead to an FBI investigation, however brief. They never expected Kavanaugh to stick it out all the way to the end. They expected Republicans to fold. So this is where we reach a major turning point. And when Philip Klein is trying to remind us He's trying to remind us of the fact that the same anger that we all felt as conservatives with the Affordable Care Act passing led to six years of a significant surge in voting from the Republican side and ultimately a takeover of the House and the Senate, as well as the presidency. So the article continues, says, to conservatives, the confirmation of Kavanaugh is the culmination 
of a decades-long quest to secure a conservative majority in the Supreme Court in the hopes of restoring a more faithful obedience to the Constitution. It is seen as a triumph over a nasty, coordinated attempt at a character assassination, an all-too-familiar tactic deployed by the left. Going back to Robert Bork and on through Clarence Thomas and Miguel Estrada, Democrats have been vicious in efforts to block conservative judicial nominees at this time, and they failed. So again, we're just simply reviewing the fact that this was a major, major situation. Now, I'm going to skip down through the article so I can get to the meat of the matter that we can discuss here. The rage and anger that liberals feel right now will no doubt energize them in elections this November and beyond. True, conservatives are quite energized too, and it may take years before Democrats are back in full control of Washington, but given how political fortunes are always changing, it will inevitably happen someday. And when Democrats regain power, the collective liberal memory of Kavanaugh of the Kavanaugh fight is going to weigh very heavily on how they behave. Now, this article goes on to talk about how things like the filibuster could be removed and how Democrats could start ramming through initiatives like a $15 minimum wage, guaranteed jobs, universal free college, socialized health care, carbon controls, broader immigration, higher taxes, and so on. It's important that we all take a step back and see the train that's coming. Because it has not stopped. If anything, it's probably picked up its pace. Republicans are not going to be in control of the government forever. Sooner or later, the pendulum always swings back in the other direction. And of course, I sit here on October 8th, 2018, about a month from the midterm elections, what may be the most important midterm elections of my lifetime. Normally, midterm elections are very, very boring and have very low turnouts. I fully expect that we're going to see record turnouts for this midterm, without a doubt. Who wins, who comes out on top is anybody's guess, but we have to put into context and we have to keep in the forefront of our minds that the moment that Democrats regain control of the government, they are going to use the full power of that government to crush conservatives, libertarians, anybody who is an individualist in this country is going to get crushed. They are going to do everything possible to use the power of the government to ram through what essentially has become a socialist agenda and impose it upon the American people. And now that the Supreme Court is out of their grasp, potentially, they are now going to turn their focus back to the legislature as a way of getting this done. Previously, the legislature has surrendered a tremendous amount of power to the judiciary, They have avoided holding the Supreme Court in check, as is allotted and required by the separation of powers granted by the Constitution. The Supreme Court was supposed to be the weakest of the three branches, and it has now become the most powerful through the process of judicial review. And as a result, when when liberals or progressives or status, as as I've categorized them for the purpose of this show... As they have lost at the ballot box, lost in the legislature, lost at the executive branch, they have resorted to the court system as a way of imposing their ideology on the entire country. And there are countless examples, even in modern history, where this has taken place. What is eventually going to happen, most likely, one thing to consider, is they are going to fulfill the dream of FDR by packing the court with additional justices as a way to offset the conservative majority on the court. This is all very, very dangerous. And this is why it is absolutely critical, absolutely critical that we find a way to persuade the groups of people who are still willing to listen to information and explain to them as clearly and as concisely as possible why it is important that they stand for individual rights, why they stand for individualism in the face of the mob. There have been, of course, a reignition of a number of different initiatives that kind of died down over the past year or so. The newest one being the illegitimacy of the Supreme Court. Now that the status essentially have 
lost their majority vote on the Supreme Court, we can now expect all sorts of argumentation about how the Supreme Court is too powerful, about how the Supreme Court's rulings are now illegitimate, and we may actually even start to see progressive states, such as California, New York, actually start to reject Supreme Court rulings and enact some type of nullification. And it is important to note, progressives have a history of nullification and as well as secession that goes all the way back to the Civil War. All of the, or at least the majority of the southern states, were all Democrat. And when rulings started coming out of the federal government that they disagreed with, they began to enact nullification and later secession. It is important to recognize that this is a well-established and well-used tactic. We usually see it right now with respect to immigration, but we were going to start seeing it with more Supreme Court rulings, arguing that the Supreme Court is legitimacy is in question because a alleged gang rapist was nominated to the Supreme Court and did so without an FBI investigation and on and on and on and on. So how do we convince people to see things in an individual light? How is it that we combat this almost oppressive tyranny that is knocking at our doorstep? And make no mistake, folks, this is what's coming. The Democrats are now plotting, they are planning, and they are waiting for the moment to seize power and to use that power as a weapon against all of their political enemies. That's you, that's me, that's your neighbors, that's your kids, that's your parents, your brothers and sisters. They do not care. They do not care about whether or not this negatively impacts you. They only care about whether or not it furthers their ideology. In fact, if you go to politicsband.com, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I did put up a blog post a couple of days ago highlighting some of the immediate fallout once Susan Collins announced that she was going to be voting yes for Brett Kavanaugh. And what you saw was just a small example of how the moment that you are no longer in lockstep with the progressive ideology, that they turn on you. All we heard for the last two weeks was how women need to stick together and about how they believe all women. They believe all survivors. Isn't it interesting? The language has changed now. We no longer have sexual harassment or sexual assault victims. We have sexual assault survivors. A survivor. That's a, what a powerful, powerful word. Survivors. You can't question a survivor. You can't blame a survivor. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't survive sexual harassment. You don't even necessarily survive sexual assault. You survive the Holocaust. You survive a plane crash. That's like talking about surviving Thanksgiving dinner with your in-laws. Or surviving the talk with your kids. Those aren't survival situations. Now, there could potentially be some sexual assault situations that are survival situations. But labeling every single woman who is a victim of some type of sexual crime, they're not survivors. And the whole reason we know that this type of language is being used as a way to shield these women from any type of, well, basically making them beyond reproach. And we simply, that's not how our judicial system works. But if any of these particular women actually began to exercise some of their own individuality and do things that are not in lockstep with the progressive ideology, then suddenly they are traitors to their gender. And so I laid out in my blog post, I invite you to go check it out at politicsband.com about how there's basically a few different stages to look at things. Number one, 
the fact that you have a number of individuals who actually believe that they're living a real-life version of The Handmaid's Tale, in which women are enslaved and forced to give birth to babies. And then I basically show different examples of how the leftists have turned against Susan Collins. Some of these I can't even read here for the purposes of language. But for an example, one tweet saying, Ladies, that sharp stabbing pain in the back you just felt was courtesy of Senator Susan Collins. Yes, she is a betrayal. A betrayal to her gender. Now, there are countless examples in a bunch of different contexts. You can see this with conservative women who have been attacked, demeaned, insulted by the left, where it all goes basically unpunished. You can see members of the homosexual community who turned conservative and are cast out. Members of the community, of the black community, black conservatives, people like Candace Owens, who are trashed, unbelievably so, from the left and are considered traitors to their race. Because see, ultimately, how this is all organized, and this is very important, is the aspects of individual rights also span in the opposite direction with respect to status. Because you see, they're not interested in the individual. They're interested in the group. It's group collectivity. They're not interested in you as an individual. They are only interested in the contributions that you bring to a specific group of people. And those groups of people are all, ironically, typically victims or survivors of some type of grievance that is inflicted upon by, well, the, basically, it used to be this nameless, faceless person. However, it has began to materialize more so as white men or white people in many cases. But there are a variety of different labels that are applied to these nameless, faceless people that oppress all of these different marginalized groups. And of course, the, the left can't be satisfied with all of the individual group identities that they have created, now they have invented what they refer to as intersectionality, in which all of these different groups sort of collide with each other. And what do these groups have to do with each other? What is their purpose? The statists use group identity as a way of categorizing people and organizing them in a hierarchy of importance. Most importantly, the importance of your opinion and how much it actually matters. So opinions of certain minority groups may be more relevant than the opinions of certain gender groups, as an example. If you are a black man, your opinion is not worth nearly as much as a black woman who also happens to be a lesbian, transsexual, things of that nature. And the ability to speak to certain issues is greatly diminished as your opinion is devalued based on all of these different group identity criteria. And this essentially, and most importantly, dehumanizes the people that are part of this ideology. And that's a very dangerous thing. Because that dehumanization is not, it's not revealed until you step out of line. And the moment you step out of line, you see the viciousness, you see the condescension, you see the real source of hate that exists in America. You see the emotional basis and foundation of statism or progressivism. And that's also a major dividing point between the two different camps. And the thing is, is that the world and the utopia that the status advertise is nothing close to what this nation was supposed to be. And that's ultimately why we have such a large amount of dysfunction currently within our governmental system. It's because we have encouraged and cultivated this centralized collective government with almost unlimited power and authority over the individual citizens of America. And it has naturally attracted the most diabolical and vile politicians that 
exist within America because the people who are naturally drawn to power, authority, or greed are going to find their way into politics because it's one of the greatest sources of power, authority, and greed that you will find in the country currently today. So the very system and the way it's designed influences enormously so on the kind of people that are attracted to it. And this is something that the founders of America understood when they framed the Constitution. They understood that man, including women, is imperfect and has a lust for power. That's why we have the separation of powers. That's why we have different organized functions within the legislative branch. That's why we believed wholly so in federalism, which is putting state power above federal power, because we wanted to limit the opportunities for a group of few to govern the many. But most importantly, we wanted to organize and create a representative republic that would ultimately protect the individual over the mob. There's an enormous amount of confusion that exists out in America with, re- with regards to us being a democracy. You'll see that thrown around all the time. This is a threat to our democracy. This is a danger to our democracy. When you hear somebody say that America is a democracy, you should become immediately suspicious of whatever rhetoric follows that statement. And that is simply because they are exposing their incredible ignorance about one of the most basic fundamental aspects of this country, which is that we are not a democracy, we are a representative republic. And that leads me to this, one of the other arguments that is going to become more prevalent as time goes on, in addition to the illegitimacy of the Supreme Court, and that is the abolishment of the Electoral College. In fact, Arcasia Cortez tweeted out, or at least I believe it was present in an interview, where she attributed the Electoral College to some aspect of slavery, claiming that it had its roots in slavery. And of course, she was what she was doing is she was mixing up the three-fifths clause of the Constitution with the Electoral College. And of course, none of us should be surprised. This woman has demonstrated to be one of the single most ignorant people within politics in the public spotlight than I could ever think of. But that is unfortunately a serious danger because now this information is being disseminated to all of her supporters who now believe the Electoral College has some kind of connection to slavery. When in fact the purpose of the Electoral College is to protect the president's election from mob rule. There's a reason why we don't elect the president on the popular vote. Because the Electoral College was designed to prevent the large states from making decisions for the rest of the country. And it gives the smaller states a little bit larger of a say. It makes sure that the president doesn't only campaign in California, New York, and Texas. It makes sure that the president goes to places like Iowa, and Michigan, and Ohio, and Kansas, and Nebraska. Because all of these states have value. And all of these states could potentially give you the electoral votes that you need to nudge you over the finish line. This is all done to protect the individual from the mob. And that is a point that I cannot emphasize enough. And ultimately, the major dividing line between progressivism and individualism. And that is what is at stake here, is the freedom of the individual. Now, that's not to say that the architects within the GOP have the individual at the basically at the forefront of everything that they do either. The Republican Party has strayed from conservatism in a major way, most notably with respect to spending. They now share a lot of the ambitions of the Democrat Party with us with respect to spending in a major way. The only thing that Democrats and Republicans tend to disagree on is who is more qualified to manage this bloated, out-of-control federal government that we have. That's unfortunately how thin the differences between the parties are. 
But that isn't to say that we all subscribe to that exact same concept out in flyover country or the heartland of America. Many of us, in fact, still support the idea of individualism because we believe that we should have the freedom to do the things that we want to do, provided they don't impact other people. Now, I've had friends of mine who have pointed out that this is a very libertarian perspective and that I'm probably more libertarian than I am conservative, which may have a hint of truth to it. But I want to give you a little bit of additional context to understand some of the separation of these different groups on the side of the individualists. Libertarians are basically conservatives without any morals or ethics. Now, that's libertarianism. I apologize by making it sound like I said libertarians. Libertarianism is conservatism, but without any ethics or morals built in. Now, what does that mean? It means that libertarianism believes that you have the right to starve, that you have the right to die without any hospital care. These are just a couple of examples. Now, that's not, I'm not trying to make a negative judgment necessarily about libertarianism. The difference being is that conservatism has some of this baked into the cake. That, for example, conservatism does not believe that things like abortion should be legal, whereas libertarians would say that they should, at the very least, leave it up to the individual states or that something like this should not be made illegal. It's the same thing with a lot of drugs. Typically, unfortunately, a lot of libertarians these days tend to be mostly libertarian because they want to see a lot of different drugs legalized. That's a whole different subject, but as a one particular uh, anchor point. And so conservatism tends to have a lot of the ethics and morals of society baked into our laws. Because ultimately, morality is a boundary line when it comes to our culture. It's a point at which we've decided you can't go any further in this particular direction with this particular issue. That's essentially some of the dividing lines between the two different camps. However, both camps do strongly believe in individual liberty. Now, why is this important? Because one of the things that I think many Americans miss when you talk about individualism is they look at their life and they say, I have all kinds of freedom. I can do, I can go whatever movie I want to go. I can go out to eat whatever I want. I can buy whatever car I want. I can buy a house. There's all these things that I can do of my own free will. That's true. But look around you, wherever you are. Maybe you're, maybe you're in the car. Maybe you're at home. Maybe you're out to eat. Wherever you are right now, look around you. Everything you see, every piece of furniture, every electronic device, every wall, every roof, every object that you see, even the device that you're using to listen to the sound of my voice right now, even the device that I am using to record right now are regulated by the government. There are regulations and rules and laws that had to be followed, adhered to, or complied with in order to create the object that you are looking at right now. The government regulates the size of your toilet bowl. The government regulates how the walls of your home are built. The government regulates whether or not your home is built at all. The government regulates how much you pay in taxes of the location that you're at. The government regulates the people who are employed at the business you might be at. The government regulates the electricity that you use to charge your phone. The government regulated the, the wires and the overall design and makeup of the headphones that you might be using or the speaker that you're listening to. Think about how crazy that is. How crazy that is. That everything you see, hear, and touch is somehow affected by or completely controlled by government regulation. Absolutely preposterous. And all of those regulations have costs. They have compliance costs. They have regulatory costs. And so all of the costs that we endure every single day as consumers are inflated in some way 
because of the regulations that it took to bring that device into existence. That's how powerful our centralized government has become. And ultimately, the danger is that sooner or later that power is going to be turned against the individual in the favor of the mob. The other thing that the status will tell you is that the purpose of government, as I've mentioned before, is essentially to provide forms of redistribution of wealth, security, health care, when in fact none of these things are the job of the government. When the United States of America was founded, and it was framed by the Constitution, the founders and framers understood one simple truth, is that men and women, of course, have certain unalienable rights given to them by God, not by the government, not by the president, but by the Almighty himself. And that the purpose of government, via the consent of the governed, you, me, your brother, sister, neighbors, was to secure these rights, period. The purpose of the government is not to provide health care. The purpose of the government is not to provide education. The purpose of the government is not to lay roads, to pay cops, firefighters, to provide Medicare or Social Security. The purpose of the government is to secure your unalienable rights as an individual, not as a, not as a black man or as a homosexual woman or as a transgendered, whatever it is that you may identify as today, as an individual, as a you, as a me, our rights. That's the purpose of government. And instead, statists have then decided that they wanted to use government to create elevated groups of people, victims, although we now call them survivors. And being a victim, of course, comes with certain perks. As a victim, you can't be blamed. <coughs> you can't be questioned. You can't have anything negative attributed to you, and you certainly are not responsible. However, as a victim, you can, of course, claim all the positives that have come out of whatever situation that you're in. So as an example, if a black man in the United States of America, according to a statist, was to fail to become successful, his failure is ultimately due to the oppression of the white controlling system that somehow keeps him down. It's this system that prevented him from getting a job. It's this system that got his girlfriend pregnant. It's this system that resulted in him ultimately leaving his responsibility as a father, abandoning his child, sending a check if possible. It's this system that caused him to commit crimes, to be arrested, to be incarcerated. That's how it goes. However, if this black man happened to grow up and happened to become a successful Supreme Court justice, and his name was Clarence Thomas, then that, of course, is due to his own hard work, perseverance, and sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Where all the positives, of course, are attributed to the individual, but none of the negatives are their responsibility. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is also a major difference between individualism and statism. Statists believe that you are not responsible for anything negative that happens to you, that the negative aspects of your life are someone else's fault, and only government can restore order. Only the government can provide you the things that you failed to provide for yourself because you are too weak, stupid, or poor to do it for yourself. That's essentially the message of status. And that if you just surrender a little bit more of your rights, a little bit more of your money, and most certainly surrender your vote, then you will get whatever it is that you desire out of life. But of course, if you don't provide any of those things, then you're cast out. Whereas the individual... The individualist side of the house is vastly different. The individual side of the house believes that every person, man, woman, and child, is responsible for seeking their own destiny and is ultimately responsible for the things that happen to them in life. 
and that it is up to the individual to seek the success and the things in life that they desire most. And only they, as the individual, know what those things are. Nobody is here to tell you what's important in your life and what's not important. Nobody is here to tell you how to raise your children, whether or not you should go to church, what those churches should say. The individual doesn't believe that you should have to be forcefully educated via the public education system and that you don't have to submit yourself to the indoctrination thereof. The individualist believes ultimately that every person in this country, indeed in this world, is responsible in some form or factor for the situation that they currently find themselves in. But here's the, here's the magic of that. As scary as individual responsibility might be to some, it also means that you have the power to do something about it. That the individual, should they find themselves in a terrible, seemingly unescapable situation, can actually exercise their own individual power and authority over their life and remove themselves from the negative situation that they are in. Whereas if you are a statist, you can never get yourself unstuck. Unless, of course, you surrender yourself to the almighty government. And then maybe, just maybe, if the nameless, faceless people are defeated and their oppression no longer exists, then you will have the utopia that you've always dreamed of. This situation has never been more obvious than what took place with Judge Kavanaugh. All of these women told that the men are coming for you, that the men are going to abuse you, that basically you are just cattle. And now the government has stated that it is okay if you are sexually abused and assaulted and that no one cares and no one will believe you. And there's nothing you can do about it unless, of course, you vote progressive, you surrender your individual identity and identify only as a woman, and you unite with your femininity, and you... It's insanity. It's pure insanity. But this group mentality, this group think, fuels all of these groups. It coalesces them. It motivates them. And then they charge the capital steps like they're invading the beaches of Normandy. And they really, truly see themselves as these freedom fighters. And that's vitally important. None of the people who were protesting at the Capitol felt like their presence there was insignificant. They truly believed. In fact, according to a Snopes article regarding some unrelated aspects of some photography that showed people being paid off or not being paid off, one of the individuals that they interviewed, who were one of the organizers of these events at the Capitol building, stated that the people who were there actually believe that they're fighting for their right to exist. To exist. And this is the out-of-control rhetoric that is fueling all of this craziness, where you have people who really truly believe that they are on the cusp of being exterminated, that their right to exist, their right to live, is being directly threatened by the appointing of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court, that somehow the Supreme Court is going to, I don't know, open up extermination camps, prevent women from having sex. Oh my God. I mean, I don't really know what exactly it is that all of these people are truly afraid of, but it's what's fueling their behavior. And ultimately, it is pushing people to one side or the other of these particular overall ideologies, whether it's statism or it's individualism. There are many more examples of the differences between the two groups, but here's what you need to understand. While everything that we're seeing is very, very scary and the the destination that we are hurtling towards is not going to be a pleasant one. Two things are very important that I'm going to leave you with. Number one, 
as I've stated on the previous podcast, the old rules, as dubbed by Dan Bongino, the old rules are out. The new rules are in. We are facing a situation where the se- the second that the Democrats regain control of any type in Washington, things are going to get very, very ugly and very, very quickly. All of this is accelerating at a rapid pace. We are seeing exponential increases, essentially, where we are going from satire to reality. It's happening faster and faster and faster. And so we have a responsibility to vote every Democrat possible out of office for as long as humanly possible. It is critical to prevent them from having any kind of political authority or power for as long as we can. However, this is not going to last. It's not. Sooner or later, something will happen and the country will swing in the other direction and we will see Democrats regain power in Washington once again. Now, when that happens, it's going to be vitally important that we all expose the real underbelly of the Democrat Party and continue to expose them even as we still hold on to power and authority in this nation. Because what you saw over this past weekend was a number of individuals who are abandoning the Democrat Party, people who were lifelong Democrats who saw a very, very quick cast aside of our most basic judicial principles of presumed innocence and of due process. And they just threw them out, just threw them out to the point where the standard is no longer even presuming or it's beyond presumption of innocence or guilt. Now it's simply being capable. I want to read you a tweet from the Women's March where they said Kavanaugh was angry, vindictive, and hostile during his testimony about Dr. Blasey Ford's allegations of attempted rape. We fully believe a man this belligerent and entitled is capable of sexual assault. Now it's no longer about evidence. Now it's no longer about facts. It is simply whether or not you are capable of sexual assault which I'm sorry to report means that the vast majority of men in the United States are capable of sexual assault and therefore deemed guilty if someone was to accuse them. That is the logic that is being employed. They don't care about investigations. They don't care about facts or evidence. Now the standard of proof is simply whether or not you are capable of such a thing. So if someone robs a bank and shoots and kills the teller, and the police come knocking at your door, and they know that you have a firearm. It doesn't matter if there's no evidence to show that you were at the bank, or that you have possession of the money, or that anybody saw you rob the bank, or that your friends were aware that you were plotting to rob the bank. No, just simply the fact that you were capable of robbing the bank, ergo that you have two legs, two arms, and a firearm and maybe even live near the bank. And of course, everyone loves money, and everyone wants more of it, so you're guilty. I mean, it sounds far-fetched, but ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what's being advocated for here. And so this extreme, extreme behavior is causing people to reconsider being part of the Democrat Party. And it is vital that we continue to expose this as much as humanly possible Because this is progressivism, not the happy-go-lucky version where they tell everybody, oh, we're just going to, we're going to pay for your health care, we're going to pay for your social security, and we're just going to take all that money from those rich white people and give it to you, and you won't even have to worry about it, you won't even feel bad about it, because you're not even going to know where it came from. You don't have to put a face to it, to... Now we're just going to, if somebody says that you did something and we think you're capable, boom, you're guilty. There are a number of people who are looking at this situation going, this is crazy. And they're walking away. They're walking away. And my hope is to convince more people to walk away. More people to join the side of the individualists. 
to support individual liberty against the mob. That's why we have a representative republic, folks. The whole purpose of having a representative republic is to protect the individual from the mob. Democracy is a vicious, vicious way to run a country. And I'll give you a quick example, very quick. This is democracy. You have four men and three women in a room. One man says, I propose that we rape the women. All in favor. Well, of course. All four men raise their hands. All against. All three women raise their hands. Up, oh, the majority has it. And the men rape the women. That's democracy. That is not a system that you want. You do not want your neighbor voting on whether or not you have the individual right to freely express yourself. You do not want your neighbors to vote on whether or not you have a right to due process or a right against self-incrimination or a right against unlawful searches and seizures or a right to a speedy trial. You don't want your neighbors voting on this sort of thing because maybe your neighbors don't like you and they're going to take your rights away from you as soon as humanly possible. That's why we have a representative republic to prevent these sorts of things from happening to prevent your rights and my rights from being up on the chopping block so easily because the mob is fickle. The, the mob changes its perspectives and its opinions at a moment's notice. And you simply cannot effectively govern that way. That's not a way that you, you can't live that way. And that is ultimately what is being called for here. It's pure insanity. No one in their right mind would want to live under this system but because people are not educating themselves, whether on philosophy or history, they are ultimately being victimized and taken advantage of by the status who know better, but simply will do whatever is possible to get power and authority in this nation. This is where we're at. We are on the precipice of something big. It may not happen in the next month. It may even not happen in the next year. But over the next few years, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to see things become more dire. There's going to be more tension because the Democrats are not going to forget what happened this weekend. When they finally have the opportunity to exact revenge, they will. It will be swift and it will be harsh. These people are crazy. They are crazy on emotion, they are enraged, they feel betrayed, they are scared. And fear does strange things to people's behavior. And as long as Democrat politicians continue to ratchet up the rhetoric to keep their voting base whipped up, when the voting base starts to believe things such as that the conservatives are coming for all of the women, that we're going to rape all the women, these are the kinds of things that are circulating across social media where people actually believe that they're on the cusp of some type of dystopia in America or people who actually believe that they're living in a, in, a, in, a, in a dystopia America. You have to understand that that impacts the things that they do say and think. And it's vitally important that we continue to educate those, those who are willing to listen about why this ideology is so very dangerous and why it is an imperative that they stand up for and protect individual liberty. Because when the day comes that the Democrats regain power, that's the moment where they will be fully exposed, where everyone will be able to see the final form of progressivism. But it may be too late to do anything about it before people get hurt, before lives are ruined, and before this country is irreversibly damaged. We certainly do not want it to get to that point. If we could stop it before then, that would be ideal. But I fear that we may have to find out what, progressive, what progressivism really is before we coalesce to stop it. But until then, I'm going to continue to post these podcasts. I'm going to continue to voice my own opinion. I'm going to continue to blog. I'm going to continue to tweet. Until the inevitable day when social media companies like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and all the others enact their own revenge and boot me off. And when my politics become banned. But until then, I will continue to be here 
and to continue to tell my side of the story as best as I possibly can. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening this afternoon to Politics Ban, or this evening, or this morning, whatever the time is that you happen to catch up with me. We will talk to you next week.